Welcome to the DTB podcast for August 2015, volume 53, number eight. My name is David Fizakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, and I'm James Cave, the editor-in-chief. So our editorial this month focuses on an announcement made by the Secretary of State for Health for England that in future all medicines costing more than £20 will have the indicative cost printed on the packaging and a message saying that this has been funded by the UK taxpayer. So we thought we'd look at some of the issues. And James, what are the kind of the concerns that we've highlighted? Well, I, th- I think the first one to say is that we went away and we looked at international and national guidance and evidence on how you improve adherence in patients. And the one thing that we found no evidence for at all was this idea of putting the value of the drug on the pack. So no evidence that we could see that supports it. Any steer or guidance saying that this is an area that's even been considered? No, I mean, we we know that adherence to drugs is a problem in people who, who pay for their drugs and therefore clearly know the cost of their drugs. So it does seem a little counterintuitive. And the idea that we're focusing on a value of £20? Yes, I mean, £20 seems to be plucked from the ether. We now know that the average cost of medicines dispensed in England is around £8 to £8.50. So uh, it's, not, it's not really clear why they've picked £20 out of the air. And I guess one of the issues for us is that cost does not reflect efficacy. No. No, absolutely right. So you could have a patient who's got cardiovascular disease and COPD, and they've got three very important drugs they're taking for their heart, which cost well under £20. In fact, all three together, you know, a statin, an ACE inhibitor and uh, an antiplatelet drug all together may be costing less than £5 a month. They might also have an inhaler for their COPD that costs uh, 30 or more pounds a month, which is only actually giving them some symptomatic benefit rather than any improvement in their morbidity or mortality. So a case in point there where, you know, the, definitely the cost of a drug has no relationship to its ability to improve your health. And any risks about unintended consequences? Well, I think this is, this is one of our biggest concerns. The elderly often are concerned about these sorts of things, the vulnerable patients who've got mental health issues who are on atypical antipsychotics may worry that their drugs are costing a lot and may get concerned and stop taking them because of that. I suppose there are some practical concerns as well. I mean, medicine labels, when I last looked at them, don't have acres of clear space on them. So where do you put this? How do you manage it? And actually, as with anything, once it's been there a while, will anyone read it anyway? Absolutely. I mean, I think anyone who dispenses medicines knows that these days there are some very clear things that must be included in labels. The MHRA has to approve all labelling of drugs as well. So it looks as if the government is basically saying every drug that costs over £20 will have to have a new label design that will have to be approved by the MHRA their cost implications for the industry for that and at the end of the day I'm just a little bit concerned that when the pharmacist comes to apply the dispensing label he's going to find there's very little space left on the pack to do it and obviously adherence is an important issue but what we know from current recommendations is actually there's no shortcut to it you have to put time in to well, as a GP, what, what do you think are the key steps you'd need to put in? Well, I think it's the single most important thing is is that having a patient-centred approach. 
there is some good guidance from NICE. It's now sort of quite a few years old, but just you need to discuss the issues with patients. I think most important thing with adherence to drugs is to give patients permission to say they don't like a drug or they want to stop it. Because as soon as you've got a patient who's no longer adhering to a drug, but is still ordering them because he doesn't want to upset you, that way just lies a, a mess when you start to have to tinker with their blood pressure pills because it's not controlled and they've got more pills they're taking and they don't dare tell you they're not taking them. So I think the most important thing is patient-centred. Give patients permission to say, I don't like this drug or I don't want to take it. So perhaps more emphasis on processes and uh, conversations and less on... Uh, yeah, and more time, which of course is the one thing we are a little bit uh, short on these days. Okay, thank you very much. Our first main article this month revisits a topic that we looked at 15 years ago, the management of frozen shoulder. We concluded then that there was no clear evidence that any treatment could shorten the natural history of the condition and found little evidence as to the best treatment option. So we thought we'd have another look and see whether things have changed greatly. So the first question is, is frozen shoulder still a commonly seen problem? And the answer is yes. Yeah, about 8 to 10% of people, adults that is, tend to develop frozen shoulders, particularly common in diabetics. Up to 30% of diabetics will suffer a frozen shoulder for reasons that aren't completely clear. And the typical life cycle of the frozen shoulder? Yes, yeah, so you tend to get this in sort of one to three year history of people developing pain, then restricted movement, the so-called uh, freezing stage, time period, perhaps as long as a year to 15 months where people have the classic frozen shoulder. And then most people actually then there's about two to three years develop a stage where they actually find their frozen shoulder starts to free up and they actually can get quite a lot of function back. And only a proportion of patients end up with a perpetually frozen shoulder. So for some people it, it, it's unpleasant but it will eventually clear. Exactly and of course that is what makes treatment or examining treatment options difficult to interpret because if a proportion of people are going to get better anyway and you're trialing a treatment you know how much of that benefit is treatment-based and how much of that is simply the natural history. So what are the interventions that we could consider? So I think I think we're all aware of these. Obviously, analgesia is an option, physiotherapy, other sort of physical or electric therapies, if you like, things like ultrasound, light, heat, those sorts of things, intra-articular corticosteroid injections, nerve blocks, manipulation, those are all the sorts of things that are still on the table and are still used for the treatment of frozen shoulder. And the big question, what works? Yes, well, that is the multi-million dollar question. Of course, I'm not going to give the game away. You need to come and, come and read the whole article. But I think, safe to say, the, the issue here is that we have, as always, it seems, meagre evidence base for some of these treatments that have become ingrained in our management of this condition. But physiotherapy, analgesia, steroid injections all have a place, it seems. Excellent. Well, it's attempted to come and read the, the full article. And then our second uh, main article, does a low FODMAP diet help with IBS? Uh, irritable syndrome, one of those challenging conditions to manage, relatively common, a um, lot of focus on self-management strategies, of which dietary manipulation can be uh, important. And over the recent years, has been interested in targeting the so-called FODMAP. So perhaps we'll start with the first question. What is a FODMAP? Yes, what is a FODMAP? Well, of course, FODMAP stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, 
disaccharides, monosaccharides, and the P at the end is polyols. Polyols being those sweeteners like sorbitol and mannitol. So that's what FODMAP stands for. So the A in FODMAP just stands for AND. So we have, we're able to classify food substances as either high or low FODMAP? Yeah, so the idea behind this is each one of these types of saccharides are found in certain food products. The idea, the problem with them in theory is that some people struggle to digest these particular molecules. They ferment in the large bowel, creating gas, which then causes wind, distension, and because in some people they seem to be more sensitive to distension, pain. So if you're, if you're susceptible to kind of visceral hypersensitivity, lots of gas is going to be a problem. Exactly. I mean, it's probably quite a bit of a problem for most people, but particularly this group of people. More of a problem for, for this group of people. So the idea is that if we can identify foods that are high or low in FODMAPs, then you might be able to do something about it. Yeah, so that, that's the principle. Now, because it's complicated, most guidelines don't suggest we do this first line. So it's still lifestyle approach, first line. But in people who've really not managed to get control of their symptoms with this, then most guidance, for example, NICE guidance, suggests that FODMAP approach or, or looking at a FODMAP low diet should be considered at that point. And the evidence? Well, as always, gosh, isn't it always the same? But evidence, it's there. We have got some some studies. They tend to be small, and some of them incredibly short. We have one study of 30 people that was just two days long in its period. So we have, you know, we, we have studies. And perhaps the best one, I suppose, to give us a flavour of what's going on here is if you took patients, randomised them to either a low FODMAP diet or a standard uh, diet, and this was based in Australia, so a standard Australian diet, if you looked at symptoms on a 10 centimetre visual analogue scale, then about 21 out of 30 people had a greater than one centimetre improvement on that scale for being on a FODMAP diet, if that makes sense. So, you know, it's, you know, 30 people, 21 of them will achieve a one centimetre or more improvement in their symptoms. And that would be deemed to be a clinical benefit. And that was what they deemed to be a clinical. They, they took one centimetre on a 10 centimetre scale as being significant. You know, you might say, is it, is it not? You know, that's up to you. But, you know, we're not talking about revolutionary stuff here, but it may be an option for some people. And I think, I think for, for us as clinicians, I think what it does help us do is 60% of patients feel that their IBS is down to a food allergy, as they call it. We might say it's a food intolerance. And I think what the FODMAP approach allows us to do is reminds us of those particular types of dietary products or, or things that we eat that can sometimes cause wind. And I think, you know, many of my patients, when I've mentioned sweeteners, they hadn't even, even clocked that that might have been the, the problem with their, their um, IBS. But I guess it's reasonable to make people aware of the limits of the evidence so that they, they know exactly, yes, this is a, an interesting approach, but actually the studies are I, th small. I think that's right. I mean, I think, I think, you know, and obviously there are concerns that people might end up restricting their diets inappropriately. So the, the standard advice is this should always be done with the help of a qualified dietitian, something that people should be doing based on a diet sheet. And is the principle that you 
alter the diet for a period and then reintroduce? Yeah, so so the way most people do it is they say, let's go on a, on a low, really low FODMAP diet for six weeks. Let's see if you have got the sort of IBS that will respond to that. Now, if you have, you then start to reintroduce foods because often that very low FODMAP diet is actually quite difficult to sustain. But you want to just find out whether this is a path worth treading first. So do we have any indication that this could be harmful? So apart from the obvious issues around restrictions in your dietary intake, the only other perhaps interesting issue is that they have shown that changing to a low FODMAP diet can uh, affect your gut microbiota. Okay, thank you very much. And just one item from DTP Select, which have a quick review of. There's a, a Cochrane systematic review looking at interventions to help with benzodiazepine misuse and what particular interventions may be effective, particularly looking at psychosocial interventions. So I suppose the question is, is benzodiazepine misuse still a common problem in primary care? I think it is. I think and, and I think for a lot of GPs now, the, the big issue for us is very often that, that it's historic. So very few of us, I think, are putting patients on high doses of benzodiazepines now. But what we have is a number of patients who've perhaps been taking them for some years, perhaps they move into the practice area, and you think, oh gosh, how do I, how do I help this person come off these drugs before they start to have serious complications from them? And the type of interventions that Cochrane looked at? So they looked at things like using cognitive behavioural therapy with or without tapering of the benzodiazepine, motivational interviewing, and also just a simple approach of sending a letter to the patient explaining your concerns. And if there is a simplish bottom line, was there anything that struck you that if you were going to do one thing, what would it be? Well, it was it was striking that, that actually... Sending a personalised letter to the patient was actually quite effective, you know, is an option. It was certainly better than sending a sort of just a bland generic letter. And the other issue is is just, ta- you know, tapering works, it seems. Tapering with CBT works better in the short term, but after about six months, there's no difference between whether they've had CBT or not. The tapering group and the CBT plus tapering group were both achieving the same sort of outcomes. So if you're going to begin this process of... Uh, looking at benzodiazepine use, then starting with a tailored letter and then inviting people in for review is likely to be a reasonable approach. It seems as good as anything else. Fantastic. Okay, well, thank you very much. To read these and any articles, please visit our website, dtb.bmj.com. And if you have any comments or feedback, please email us at dtbeditor at bmj.com. And thank you for listening.